0: Well, this morning, Nick Krause is with us again from All Saints. Thank you, Nick, for coming and preaching the word this morning. Let's stand together as we read the passage that he is preaching from this morning in Philippians, Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, leaving us uh, with your word and with your Spirit to guide us. And I pray that if you that you would come this morning through your Spirit and give Nick the words to speak, that we might uh, be encouraged, might be convicted, that we might uh, grow in our understanding of you. I ask
1: these things in Christ's name. Amen.
2: Good morning evergreen it's good to see you guys i'm glad that you guys do have power and that we're able to come here the snow is in piles a lot bigger piles than i saw around richmond um but so i'm just really thankful to be here to open up god's word and if you haven't been with us we've been working through the book of philippians and we are like anthony just read we read uh philippians Chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through
1: 16. Usually
2: when you're listening to a sermon, sometimes the, the preacher gets into a little bit too much of a lecture mode, just informing you of what you need to know, informing you what the text knows, uh, what it teaches, maybe even informing you about things you don't care about too much, like what a Greek word is. I'll I'll probably still do all those things uh today but know that I the pastor doesn't the pastor does still care or at least should every good pastor should care about the so what the so what of what does this information mean not only just you know on a technical level of what is Paul trying to communicate but what, the, what significance should it make on how I live my life? This information that we looked at in the first 11 verses was all about the value of knowing Christ Jesus. What are some of those things? What's, what makes knowing Christ valuable? Well, you have a, your forgiveness of sins. You have being conformed into the image of Christ by the Holy Spirit, you have a future hope. You have a relationship with the one true God of the universe. And that's good information and it should change the way we live. And that's where Paul is going at. This is what Paul is getting at when we get to verse 12 in our text. He's going to show personally, as an example, how valuing Christ changes how he lives we're getting to a really practical level here a lot of times we wonder how should uh, how should i live as a christian you know is it like a can we put it as a bumper sticker kind of theology of you know i'm i'm not perfect i'm just forgiven and just live a life where you know i know that i sin but i'm forgiven and i'm just going to rest on that and if you guys don't know what a bumper sticker is it's what memes were uh, before, it's a generation ago a meme. And sometimes we we kind of wrestle through, you know. I know so much about the Bible, but how do I practically live that out? And I won't be able to answer all of that you know that big topic today. But I will be. We will get to see a sense of it. We're going to see how Paul really frames it by if Christ is so valuable. It should captivate us. It should capture our attention. If Christ is really so valuable, it should be what our lives are lived for. It should capture our imaginations. It should affect in our text and how it's outlined. It should affect the way that we live our life, how we frame our understanding about our life. It should frame the way we actually pursue life. And it should also frame the way we think about others. Those are the three things. It should frame the way that we understand our life, verses 12, uh, really just verse 12. Uh, It should frame the way we pursue life in verses 13 and 14. And it should also frame the way that we treat others in verses 15 and 16. And if you're wondering what it looks like to be captivated, I was just thinking about this um, this past week about how much you have to be captivated by the desire to, you know, be a doctor. How much does that actually have to captivate you? Well, you have to you have to be captivated enough by that goal that you're captivated first early on because it has to start in high school. That you start volunteering. They start giving up time with friends. You give up time that you could be maybe playing to study topics that aren't even related to being a doctor and doing well at it. Then once you get to college, you have to be captivated enough that you're still going to forget about the other things around you and pursue the goal of being a doctor, which means that you're gonna to have to excel at every single class and do really, really well. Giving up more time with friends putting more of your energies into this. It requires a lot of passion because then you have to do four more years of medical school. Then you have to do three years of residency. And if you want to specialize, you have to do a couple more years after that in some sort of fellowship. It's a lot of dedication and effort. Why does anyone go through that? Well, some people have some good motivations for that, right? They just... Christians are often drawn into the medical field for the chance to be able to help someone, to be able to be able to heal people. You know, we kind of see that in the Bible and how Christ cares for the poor and wants to help hurting people in this world, relieve the suffering of this world. We kind of want to be involved in that task. And that is a a huge motivation, but it also could be something like money or job satisfaction. I mean, what could be more satisfying in your employment than healing people or participating in that? There's lots of different things that could pursue, uh, uh, that could grab our attention about that. Even the prestige of it all, wanting people to honor you and respect you and to look up to you. There's lots of different things that make it such a captivating goal for so many people. As Christians, what is to captivate us? It might not change your pursuits, right? You can still be a doctor. But being captivated by a picture, being captivated by what is held out before you, means you pursue it with your all. You strive after it. You may be, like Paul, consider everything else as rubbish in the ESV, dung, that you consider everything else before as worthless in order that you might gain Christ. That's what we're talking about here. That's on the practical level, how you frame your life is you need to be captivated by this understanding the value of Christ Jesus If we start, if you look down at verse 11, though, he doesn't start there. He starts with, not that I've obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. It starts off with the confession, Paul's personal confession that he has not made it. What's the it? Well, directly preceding that in verse 11 What he's trying to attain is the resurrection from the dead. And just before that, in verse 10, his goal is to live in the power of the resurrection, to put the sin in his life to death, to die to himself and live for Christ. And before that, his goal is that he would not be found in himself, but be found in Christ and possess a righteousness that is not his own but one that comes from god see if we think about our the christian life the reason why that bumper sticker uh you know i'm not perfect just forgiven there's an element of truth there that paul latches onto: the fact that we're not perfect the fact that becoming a christian the value of knowing christ jesus does not mean that we have instantaneous, that we've instantaneously dealt with all our problems in life and that we don't have any longer, uh, any sin. No, the fact that we have been obtained by Christ and purchased by him and see the value of his resurrection, it might not mean that we have instantaneously achieved these things. But we have these things as a future hope. If we were to go through those things, the things of how we're not already perfect or complete, verse 12, right now, we have been declared righteous in Christ. If you trust in Jesus Christ and his person and his work alone to save you, you are looked at by God, not as a sinner, but as a saint, as someone who's free from sin, That's attributed right now, but the reality of that, the reality that you are a sinner still stands. God's verdict that he made in time when you trusted in Christ will be one day a reality. We have a future to look forward to that one day the verdict that he made on us will become a reality in our life when we are with him in heaven. What about our sanctification? If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that you have sins that you still are struggling with, that you're trying to mortify. And every time you read your Bible, you discover more and more sins in your life that the Bible calls you to turn from and to turn to God. And the more we actually mature, the more we realize this the fact that we are not complete. And Paul kind of emphasizes that point again in verse 13, when he kind of bears down on this and says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Made it my own being the attained the prize, that he's reached the goal, the goal being perfection or completion in the Christian life. He's kind of pa- pausing there because right now Paul's using himself as an example. He's talking to the first person. He's saying, brothers, I myself do not think that I've reached the goal. If Paul did not reach the goal of perfection and dealing with his sin entirely, we shouldn't be surprised the fact that we haven't reached The goal of perfection in Christ, and in fact, we should probably doubt anyone, and it should be a red flag to us when anyone claims that they have reached the goal, that they have become perfect. This kind of frames our understanding to see that our pursuit in life is not about perfection, but it's about the direction of our life. What direction are we headed? Are we headed towards Christ and Christ's likeness? Or are we stagnant? Paul says no. He's not stagnant. He's not complacent in the Christian life. This value in Christ causes him to press on to make it his own. Pressing on, there that word, and it comes up again in verse fourteen. Dioko. This word means to pursue. It means to your chasing after to put your hands on to grab hold of it you know this word usually has a negative connotation in matthew five fifteen, it's translated as to persecute when he jesus is warning his disciples that blessed are those when people others persecute you or it even just describes paul's life when he says when he was describing his former zeal of being a Jew in verse six, it says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. That word there is, I was a pursuer of the church. Well, the reason why it hasn't this translated persecute is because Paul had as his zeal, he was so zealous that he would pursue after individuals to chase them down, to grab hold of them, to drag them in front of the Sanhedrin, and like Stephen, to be stoned. That was Paul's pursuit. And here, what Paul says is he uses that imagery, if you can imagine, he uses that imagery to say that this is what he's doing. He is chasing down to make it his own. What? Conformity to Christ living in the power of the resurrection, growing in holiness one day to attain the resurrection of the dead. But that's the result of something. Paul is not saying I'm going to run and earn my way to favor with God, to earn my way to having these things, resurrection, to earn uh sanctification growing in holiness no it's because of a reason it's because christ has made me his own if you see he's using that same phrase in the esv it says it my own because christ made me his own he's picking up on the same language here it's uh the early church father uh theodote uh Theodoret, I think I'm pronouncing that right, Theodoret used this imagery, and he kind of cast it in a hunting terminology. He said, it was he, it's like Paul was saying, it was he who first caught me in his net. Paul was in effect saying, I was fleeing him and was turning well away. He caught me as I fled. But now I'm a pursuer in my desire of catching him that it may not be disappointed, uh, be a disappointment to his saving work. I alluded to it last time, but I think that we should see what this looked like in Paul's life in Acts chapter 9. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 9. We're just going to be reading eight verses.
1: But I think it's important to see what this meant for Paul. Paul had just witnessed
2: the death of Stephen. And in verse one, he says But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he could be found, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bound, bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is the kind of pursuit Paul had in his zeal after Christians, men or women. He was going to bind them and drag them to Jerusalem. Verse three. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, 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 Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told
1: what you are to do. How are we to become Christians?
2: How does this work? In Paul's life, it was while he was pursuing the church, seeking to kill people who are followers of Christ. It was in the middle of that action that he was pursued by Christ. Christ intervened in that moment, struck him blind, and said, you are going to go here and wait in this city, and I will tell you next what you are to do. Jesus is the one who first moved towards us. Jesus is the one who captures us. And while we don't hear the voice of God in an audible manner at the beginning of our Christian life, we do hear the call of the spirit through the word of God that is no less powerful and no less real and no less miraculous in our lives. Um, Concerning this, Effectual Calling, the Westminster Confession, this is a, a summary of what the Bible teaches on this subject. It says that God, the Spirit, does enable and persuade our hearts. That God, when he has a call on our life, when he captures us, when he pursues us, he enlightens our minds in the understanding of who Jesus is. He persuades us. He captures us. If life is a race, Jesus is the one who goes into our lives, intervenes, grabs us, and puts us on the starting block that starts off this race.
1: Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my
2: own, but one thing I do. Paul, the fact that he's been captured by Christ because he's been pursued, is now pursuing all of Christ and all his benefits. He's been set up on the starting blocks, and he is now running after Christ. He's pursuing him. And notice that Paul, when he saves it, he doesn't have that bumper sticker mentality of, you know, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. the The problem is not the not perfect part of that; it's the just forgiven part of that meme. The fact that Christians we aren't consider, we're not to consider ourselves just forgiven and then nothing else. We're not to live in complacency. We're not to live stagnant. We've been, started, we've been sat on the starting blocks of a race. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we were once in darkness, but now we've been a made alive in Christ, and he, we've been saved by grace alone through faith alone. And Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 ends that section with saying, and now we've been given the steps that we should take that he has not only planned out our saving us but he's also planned out the road of sanctification that lies before us and this is what he says is this one thing and even more terse here he just says i have just one thing one that i do kind of clarifies this and is inserted in the english just to make it not so rough but if you were to read this, it says, one, I have one thing, but one. I forget what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on, using that same thing. I pursue towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The frame of our life, the frame of our life should be understanding That we're not perfect, but and we have a goal that's set before us to reach. And this goal is for every Christian. If it's for Paul, it's most definitely for all of us. And this framing of understanding the life as that we have something to look forward to, a pursuit that is to be had, we're now given in this text the fact that we have a frame, we have a frame for what this pursuit is to look like what this pursuing christ is to look like what does it look like to be captivated by christ well it's he uses two like participles there the forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead that describes his pressing on that he does forgetting what lies behind here he's starting to pick up on some of the race imagery paul has uh, done this before in 1st corinthians 9:26 through 28 where
1: paul says just turn there 1st
2: corinthians 9 starting actually at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do not receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one who beats the hair, but I discipline my body and keep it under control Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Here he's picking up in our text the same picture of running a race. And he says that we need to forget what lies behind and strain forward. And forgetting what lies behind, if you're any runner, if you've ever ran or if you've ever watched a football game when a wide receiver is going to catch the ball and he catches it and while he's running, he's looking back to see if anyone's coming up on him, you know that if once you look down, look back, you've altered your course. You have slowed down your pace. You've made yourself a less effective runner. If instead, once the football player catches the football and he's running towards the goal, you know that if he just focuses on that, he can have his full attention on that and pursue at a much greater pace. What sorts of things is Paul forgetting what lies behind? Well, probably most naturally, what Paul has forgotten are all of his past achievements that he had before he was a Christian. If you remember, Paul says that he was circumcised on the eighth day, that he was an Israelite of Israelites, that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, that he followed the law very particularly, that he was zealous for the church of judaism and that his righteousness under the law he was counting himself before as blameless but whatever gain he counted as whatever he had counted as gain now he counts as loss the things that he forgot was his past achievements but i think that we kind of blunt the force of this if that's what we limit it to Focusing on past failures, past sins, whatever you focus on, if you're looking back at yourself, if you're looking back at self, either you having self-confidence or why you should lack self-confidence, either way, you're going to slow yourself down in pursuing the goal of being made like Christ. But instead, what he does is strains forward to what lies Ahead and then he describes what that is. It's the goal for the prize of the upward call
1: of God in Christ Jesus. What you would pursue
2: in a race would be, you know, in the Olympics, some that metaphor that he's picking up on on running a race for a prize. First Corinthians nine makes it explicit what you would be going after you'd be going after a wreath the word prize there is uh, a crown you know the wreath that goes around people's head after a race or the the medal or the well maybe the fake gold medal that you might earn you know it's amazing how much that prize that esteem of even becoming a doctor, really captivates people's attention and causes them to fixate on that, to run after it. But how much more do we have reason to be captivated? What's our prize? Our prize is the knowledge of Christ. Our prize is having our relationship with Christ grow more and more. Our prize is heaven itself, eternal life. That's what we're pursuing after. That's the thing that we should fix our eyes on. Notice here that the Christian life is not a passive venture. God does not just simply want to save you, have, you in, for, have your sins forgiven, and then to do nothing. Nothing. He calls us instead to action. And we are called to action because we are assured of the victory, because of the upward call we have in Christ Jesus, because we've already been captured by Jesus. And it's interesting at this point that this is kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? You know, Aesop's fables, the tortoise and the hare. The tortoise is challenged to a race by the rabbit. And the rabbit, it's actually his belief. He's so self-confident. He's so overconfident and assured of victory that he causes himself to lose. He takes a nap and then the tortoise wins. But notice the logic of Paul here. It's the fact that he has confidence in the victory that causes him to want to pursue the race. What's the deal with that? It's because this is reality. It's because we as Christians have been forgiven. What are we motivated by? Gratitude. We have been saved out of such a marvelously bad situation. We were pursuing our own ways, our own ideas of what we think might make us right with God. We're saved out of darkness, being deceived, and we were brought into God's marvelous light. We have reason to rejoice. And we know that we've been assured of the victory that we will receive heaven. That's a powerful motivation for the Christian to, to live their life for God. And it actually should, we should be warned by things like Aesop's fables realizing that overconfidence, confidence in ourselves and our abilities is something that we should be really afraid of, especially when we read the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews warns Christians constantly to be vigilant, to stand firm, that our only hope is not in ourselves and whatever we've attained, but instead our hope is in Christ Jesus to save us. And how we can be assured right now of our salvation is the fact that we're trusting in him today. And if we are trusting in him today, we have promises
1: for our future that are great. So what does the Christian life look like for us? What's the so what
2: here? If you've really grasped the value of Christ, you've had your frame of life understanding that you know life i would prefer life to be like a sprint which i can always see the goal i can always run at, i can run after and put all my energy into it but i know that i only have to do it for a short amount of time we have a frame of our life that it, our life is not like a sprint but instead it's like a marathon and we know that a marathon needs preparation we know that a marathon requires us to put a lot of energy in over a long haul to be steady steady progression knowing that we the goal is still far off in our christian life it should frame our understanding of our type of pursuit that this christian life is lived this marathon is lived we have to be focused on the goal we have to focus on knowing christ more and more so what does that mean for our lives What's your pursuit look like? Has Christ captivated, knowing the value of Christ, knowing that you have forgiveness of sins, knowing that you have been given the Holy Spirit to empower your life for godliness, to turn away from the sin in your life? How are we using that? Are we using it in our times of Bible, by times of Bible study? to invest with the time that we've been given or are we spending too much time on video games and youtube are we using our god-given gifts to pursue our own desires for even a job like a good career like being a doctor at the expense of seeking him and worshiping him at the expense of reading his word at the expense of prayer Are we pursuing him as he's revealed himself in his word? We know that when we read the Bible, we have God's word and that he uses it to transform our lives. The Christian life is one of active pursuit. And this should be a challenge for us all, as just as it was a challenge for Paul to say, our lives need to be marked more by this pursuit after Christ knowing that we've been given all the resources we need, knowing that we have the hope of heaven before us, it should also motivate us in our evangelism, should it not? If we're really captivated by Christ, we really value him, know that he's the only hope of heaven, know that there is no other name by which men must be saved, Acts chapter four. If we really know that, won't that motivate us to pursue others to give them the work of the word of Christ to let them know that they can be saved are we captivated by the fact that people really are headed to hell to spend eternity there and that out of the sheer love of God that he offers to sinners a way of escape This needs to be a pursuit. This needs to be active. Like Paul said, you know, we're not one who boxes, who beats the air. We're not running around aimlessly. We have a goal. And the goal is to know Christ more and to see others know Christ more. But it doesn't just frame our perspective on our own life. It doesn't just frame how we are to live our own life in pursuit, active pursuit. It also frames the way that we see others. Look down at cha- uh, verse 15. He says, those who are mature, those of us who are mature think this way. It's kind of interesting. He, the ESV translates this word dis- differently in verse 12, but he's picking up on that same word verse 12, where it says that he, when Paul confesses that he is not perfect, that he is not complete. In verse 15, he says, let those of us who are perfect, let those who are complete think in this way. And Paul's doing this intentionally to jar you. If you think yourself complete, if you think yourself mature, this is the way you are to think about yourself.
1: And he says, he continues. Think this way: if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you
2: also. Those of us who are actually mature, those who are are actually complete, those of us who God has started a good work in verse uh, chapter one, verse six of the same book, and He's assured that those who began that God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Those who are on this road, on this race, think this way. And they think this way, and if you think differently, Paul says, you're wrong. (laughs) This This is just funny to me, that Paul, when he's offering this, when he's saying that the result in his life, his own personal experience of being captivated by christ and now pursuing him with all his heart and soul not looking at his past for assurance but only looking forward at the goal paul says what's true for him this mindset that he has is not his personal opinion this is not his personal truth this is true for anyone who's in christ jesus that we are to be active in our pursuit of christ's likeness and knowing him more in the power of his resurrection. This is the way the mature think. In this thinking, then he said those who are mature think this way. He's picking up on the same word there that he used back in chapter two. Chapter two, uh, verse two, when he says, complete my joy, being of the same mind, picking up on that same word there, having the same love, being uh, full accord and being of one mind. This mindset of pursuit after Christ is to mark everyone in the church, and he even says that this mind, which in chapter 2 is about humility, this mindset, verse 5 of chapter 2, is yours in Christ Jesus, who demonstrated this humble mindset, he says that this is the way that we're to think of ourselves. We're to think of ourselves in verse 15 now, back in chapter 3. We're to think of ourselves as imperfect. We're to think of ourselves as not reaching the goal. Realizing that God's promise to us of salvation is not going to be completed in this life. But it's going to be completed either at one of two events. Either at your death when you, your soul goes to heaven. Or at the resurrection when God glorifies gives you the same glorified body that he himself possesses so that's one way that the mature mindset thinks but notice that when he says if any if in anything you think otherwise he not only tells them that they're wrong for thinking differently having a different mindset he also says God will reveal that to you also it's amazing the amount of patience
1: Paul has. Uh,
2: Calvin, uh, who I quote often, uh, noted on this text that he said that we must bear for time with the ignorance of our weak brethren and forgive them if it is not given them immediately uh, altogether to be one mind on this subject. Notice that Paul does not regard them as not brethren. He cautions them against flattering themselves with their ignorance and not holding the same mindset as Paul on this topic, the apostle, but he does not count them as not brothers. He says instead, taking our own incompleteness seriously gives us patience to address our own and others' failings without frustration and yet without complacency. Paul is no postmodernist, right, who thinks that everyone can think their own way and have their own truth and live according to that. No. But Paul realizes that his brothers and sisters are still in process. We don't all grow at the same pace. And on that marathon, people are running at different rates. We're in the We're not in the same place in our convictions, in our affections, in our attitudes, or our actions. Paul can be patient with other pockets of immaturity because God holds fast to Paul, despite his own immaturity in some ways. The fact that he has this mindset that he has not reached the goal allows him to be patient with others. And he leaves it up to God that he would reveal it to him also. Ephesians 1, verses 16 through 23. When Paul's talking to the Ephesians, he prays for them that they would grow in their knowledge of Christ. I'm going to actually read that because I think it's such a powerful reminder. Paul, when he's praying for Christians in Ephesians 1, starting at verse uh, 16, he says that, I'm reading chapter 2. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Notice what Paul's saying there. He realizes just for him, just as it was for him at the beginning of his Christian life, he had to be given eyes to see Jesus in order to pursue him. The same's true for all Christians. Forward progress in the Christian life depends on God's Spirit giving us wisdom, showing us his truth. And that's our prayer for everyone who's immature. We don't affirm them where they're at in their mindset. If they don't think this way, if they think that they're complete, but instead we pray for them, we show them God's word, and ask that God would reveal it to them. And lastly, Paul ends with, let us hold true to what we have attained. Another way you could translate that is, nevertheless, that only nevertheless, to that which we've and here it says attained. to that which we've made an advance? To it
1: form your conduct.
2: To it, form your conduct. The SV is kind of giving a um a more of a paraphrase translation here, saying that let us hold true to what we've attained. And I think that the, the more rough reading really gets to the point here. The fact that Paul says That what, nevertheless, despite the fact that we are not going to reach the goal in this life, we weren't promised that to begin with, but instead, we are all called to whatever progress we've made, whatever knowledge God has given us, we're to live according to that. We're to conform our lives to that. That is what all Christians are called to in the present. This is a disciplined
1: persistence.
2: You know, we could um, term this and kind of put this all into a running metaphor. That Christ, uh, vividly understanding who Christ is and what he's done for us, really understanding that the effect on our lives, what that should have, is it should put us— into a proper perspective on what race we're running we're running a marathon if we understand that it really helps us to understand the fact that we have a long way to go that this is going to require a lot of persistence out of us and discipline and we're going to live with discipline because the runner's pursuit is to be disciplined to train our bodies notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 he says that he disciplined his body to be able to do what he wants it to do which was to win the race. Christians aren't losers. Christians are to be winners. Christians are to pursue to win. I don't know about you guys. But I kind of my personality changes when I get in a kind of a competitive atmosphere. It doesn't matter if it's a board game. It doesn't matter what it is, if I'm playing football, even if I'm not good at it. I never have played sports, but my whole attitude changes. I get super pumped, and I have a lot of energy, and I'm going every single time I play, I'm going to win, and um, I'm not really a sore loser, but I'm definitely a sore winner, and I rub it in people's faces, so that's not a good thing. That's not a thing to imitate it really energizes me to win. We should be energized as Christians, knowing that we have the victory. We should be running this marathon, knowing that we've been promised victory. And we should be grateful that we're in the race to begin with. And lastly, if we have a a runner's, if we know that we're running a marathon, we are living actively, we also need to think of ourselves with a runner's mindset. And this is a team sport here in the church. We run with others. We need to realize that as our, we're running with others, we need to be humble ourselves and take on the attitude of Christ that he demonstrated in in uh, Philippians chapter two, considering others' needs as more important than our own. We need to be patient with others too, bearing up with their weaknesses as God has bared up with ours and we also need to be disciplined that whatever truth we have obtained we need to live according to that you know if we're going to be honest with ourselves there's when we're trying to live our christian life there's so many times where we have just so many questions that we're like what does the bible you know what does the bible teach about what job i should get or what life path i should pursue you know i have so many questions that the bible has not answered If we're honest with ourselves, we might have a lot of unanswered questions and we should seek the truth and seek understanding that in His Word. But if we're honest with ourselves, there's so much more of what we know the Bible teaches that we don't do. We know if you spend any time in the church, you learn so much about who God is, you learn about His law, you learn about the rules to the game of life and the Ten Commandments. And so many of those we realize when we understand those, we don't live up to that. We don't live up to the truth that we've obtained. We're imperfect. And the more we actually read and learn about our Bibles, the more we realize how far short we've fallen. It's at this point that we have to realize we should not be discouraged, brothers and sisters. We should not be discouraged at the fact that we have not obtained this. Because first of all, from our text, the church is in the business not of sprinting, but to kind of change it to an agricultural metaphor, the church is in the business of building oak trees. Strong, stable, resilient Christians who are able to withstand the storms of this life. And when we do experience disappointment when we realize that the truth that we have and what we've obtained we don't live up to that's when we receive our best motivation the fact that our lives do not determine whether or not we get into heaven that this marathon that we are we are to strive to win the goal but our efforts would have never gotten this there unless christ first saved us took us out of this world and put us in the race. And I, unless I forget the same word, this mindset, Paul contrasts this mindset in verse 19 with those whose end is destruction or hell, whose God is their belly in their glories and their shame, with minds set on earthly things. We have a heavenly calling. When we reach out to people, we want to tell them your mindset that's focused on achieving your job first and foremost, or placing your confidence in yourself. If you put your confidence there, we know where that race leads. We know where that road leads. That road leads to destruction. And we should love people enough to pursue them, to tell them the truth that this road that one leads to destruction, and this one through Christ and trusting in him alone for your salvation, resting in his finished work, that one leads to salvation because Christ earned salvation. You know, I was really disappointed um, uh, this past week. I listened to uh, – I like the Babylon Bee, super funny. Um Satirical website uh, that they do a really good job at pointing fun at kind of everyone and showing the absurdity of so many different things. But I was really disappointed this past week when I saw them do an interview with Elon Musk. And they had him in front of them and they witnessed to him, but their witness to him was kind of flippant. They had a chance to interview Elon Musk knowing that he was struggling with assurance. Of what the purpose of life is. And they say, Oh, could you just could you just do us a solid and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And started nervously chuckling. And then he, you know, he said no. And he just they just kind of moved on and played it all off as a joke. Our Christian life should be taken a lot more seriously than that. This is serious issues. This is reality, and it should captivate our lives, and we should be seeking to save the lost like Jesus did in those situations. We need to put all of our other personal ambitions aside to impress a very rich, maybe the richest man in the world that was in front of them. I know why they were nervous. It was for that reason, because they had the richest man in the world in front of them, but we need to realize that there is something greater that we're pursuing. We're not pursuing personal ambition. We shouldn't be seeking a laugh first and foremost. We should be seeking the salvation of sinners. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for not only showing us what the value of Christ is, but what effect it should have on our lives. I do pray that this would be an exhortation to us that we should see and look at our lives where we are not pursuing or are just pursuing half-hearted, that we would pursue you and your word, that we would read our Bibles, pray out to you and cry out to you that you would give us the strength to make our lives meaningful. Whether we're a doctor, a farmer, working in a pharmacy or working in the tech industry, wherever we're working, I pray that you would give us a greater ambition, an ambition to be more Christ-like every single day to honor our Savior's sacrifice, to be, show our gratitude to you, and that we would be living and pursuing so hard that when we see people pursuing lesser things and pursuing things that would lead to their damnation, that we would reach out to them and say, there is something greater to pursue. Let our ambition to be like Christ and to know him more and more every day. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. We will not be participating in the Lord's Supper today. I'm not an ordained minister of the gospel. I look forward to when I can do that and when I can lead God's people in worship in that particular way. But for now, let us hunger and thirst and be satisfied in Christ as he's presented us, to us in his word. Realize that in the Lord's Supper, we're not getting a different Jesus. It's the same Jesus either way. It's the same Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, for the sins of those who've trusted in him. And it's his blood who is atone, that is atoned for our sins. Let's trust in him. As we confess our sins together, we're going to confess our faith from the Nicene Creed. If you'll stand with me, let's confess it together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeded from the father and the son, who with the father and the son together is worshiped and glorified who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life to come.
1: Amen.